think I have a different perspective on America than some of you might. I grew up in a really small town in Michigan, and I returned there from time to time to see my family. I grew up among farmers and factory workers, around country music and hunting and high school sports. But I've lived in metropolitan areas and university towns for most of my adult life. I've attended community colleges, lived among immigrants, traveled overseas. I've worked in kitchens and dish rooms, a small farm, a grocery store, on construction sites. I've also worked in biomedical laboratories, lectured to college students with SATs and transcripts that I couldn't dream of, and presented my research at international conferences. I guess what I mean to say is that I've seen more than one face of our society and still have hope for it. I can relate to a wide variety of people. Empathy depends on the capacity to put yourself in another man's shoes. The ideological divisions that are evident in our society today make me deeply sad and concerned. I'm afraid that the division of our culture into two powerful subcultures, facilitated by media for one subculture and media for the other, with little overlap, is disturbing the natural empathy that occurs when we live every day in a mixed culture. On any set of issues, political or religious or whatever, there is a spectrum of opinions. This has always been the case in modern times to one degree or another. I think it still is. But now we witness the construction of hard ideological borders, which necessitate taking the right positions in order to be welcome inside where it's safe. These aren't real borders, but their enforcement is increasing. Are you with us or are you with them? I'm with pretty much all of you, to be honest. There are those on the fringes of society in all directions that I don't want anything to do with. People who are so broken or depraved or dangerous that they are best avoided. Part of what is happening seems to occur between the lines. I see a strong tendency to assign adverse motives to those with whom there is mere disagreement. The trick is to be able to distinguish between those on the extreme and the rest of us. It's foolish to assume that your neighbors and fellow citizens who have a different opinion about gun control or rates of taxation belong one and all to the deplorable fringe. They just don't. And it's an all-too-convenient move to pat ourselves on the back for being the good guys. Motives are invisible, and therefore the gaps can be filled in to create a straw man where there isn't one. A climate skeptic assigns revolutionary anti-capitalist motives to someone who simply cares deeply about the environment. A pro-choice person impugns their pro-life opposition as hating women when they're just deeply concerned about the lives of children. Someone who advocates for a higher minimum wage assumes the libertarian across from her doesn't care about the poor when he's really concerned about individual freedom and rising unemployment. It looks to me like every issue hinges on some kind of ethical trade-off. Can we admit that? Environmental protection versus employment and opportunity. Women's rights versus the rights of unborn children. Individual liberty versus providing for the poor. We need to vigorously debate policies in terms of their trade-offs so that we can have a society with opportunity and moral standing. Often on one side of an issue we have a bias in favor of freedom, and on the other we have a bias in favor of security. A total win by either side would be a nightmare. Total freedom would be anarchy and brutality. Total security would be the gulag. Somewhere along the line we've forgotten how much we need each other. Yes, even those people whoever you have in mind is populating the other side. Today's topic is not empathy. Rather, I wish to explore the foundations of consciousness, those qualia which provide the base meanings upon which others are understood. In the end, though, I find an interesting implication for human empathy.
From time to time on his meditation app, Waking Up, Sam Harris instructs the meditator with eyes open to take a wide view and not to focus on any individual thing. He tells us to just take in as one field the whole range of light and shadow that make up the visual experience. I think this can be a useful practice, but it causes me to wonder to what extent it's really possible. Can I see the visual field as it appears without context? Having experienced all that I have across a lifetime, I see what I see. But is what I see the same as it would be if the same stimuli of light upon my retinas was presenting a novel vision? I recognize at once what it is I'm seeing, what objects are there, and my familiarity with them. I am implicitly aware of who I am and where I am situated. Real mindfulness could, I suppose, entail seeing what is there in the present moment, in some sense denuded of such contextual constraints. Another example from waking up is that Harris will instruct us to feel the sensations of the body, but give up the imposition of the body's form. The easiest example of this one for me has been that I can focus my attention on my hands for a while, with eyes closed, and come to lose the granularity of sensation which individuates the fingers. I can experience a kind of cloud of sensation which corresponds to my hands, as long as I don't move the digits. If I slide my thumb across the base of my forefinger, for example, the shape and structure of the th thumb will become clarified and vivid. Harris suggests that the sense of being in your head, with your legs and feet down there, is an illusion. This makes sense to me. As Harris regularly points out, everything that we are experiencing, whether the sensations of the head or the chest or the feet, all of it is occurring within consciousness. So it can't be that consciousness is up here in the head and the experience of the feet is down there. All of it is contained within a common consciousness. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist. Clearly, he wouldn't be claiming that the physical substrate of consciousness is located outside of the head. He's speaking about experience. Objectively speaking, consciousness is emergent from the brain. Subjectively, though, all of conscious experience, even seeing a star in the night sky, is contained within a unified experience. In the example of bodily sensations, during a session of meditation, I have never really achieved what Harris is asking. A tingling in my left knee is automatically known to me as occurring in my left knee. I cannot divorce the tingling sensation from a lifetime of experience of my body in context. As one final example, consider the familiarity that immediately occurs when you see someone you know well. You cannot experience their face as novel. It comes accompanied with the particular sense of familiarity and other particular feelings appropriate to your knowledge of that other person. In this case, there are cases in the neurological literature in which the sense of familiarity with a face is lost forever. In his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Oliver Sacks describes such a patient, Dr. P, with anosia for faces. Sacks showed him a movie, and Dr. P could not identify the actors or their expressions so he presented a series of photographs of people directly familiar to the patient. Sachs wrote, quote, On the walls of his apartment there were photographs of his family, his colleagues, his pupils, himself. I gathered a pile of these together and, with some misgivings, presented them to him. What had been funny or farcical in relation to the movie was tragic in relation to real life. By and large, he recognized nobody, neither his family, nor his colleagues, nor his pupils, nor himself. He recognized a portrait of Einstein because he picked up the characteristic hair and mustache. And the same thing happened with, with uh, one or two other people. Ach, Paul, he said when shown a portrait of his brother. That square jaw, those big teeth, I would know Paul anywhere. 
but was it Paul he recognized or one or two of his features on the basis of which he could make a reasonable guess as to the subject's identity? In the absence of obvious markers, he was utterly lost. But it was not merely the cognition, the gnosis, at fault. There was something radically wrong with the whole way he proceeded. For he approached these faces, even of those near and dear, as if they were abstract puzzles or tests. He did not relate to them. He did not behold. Unquote. With the aforementioned examples in mind, including the neurological case presented by Oliver Sacks, we can imagine a distinction between raw conscious percepts and processed contextualized ones. Gerald Edelman made a distinction between what he called primary consciousness and higher order consciousness. In the remembered present, Edelman writes, quote, In making this qualia assumption, we will distinguish between higher order consciousness and primary consciousness. Higher order consciousness, including self-consciousness, is based on direct awareness in a human having language and a reportable subject of life. The more basic primary consciousness is present in all humans and is perhaps also present in some animals as biological individuals. Primary consciousness may be considered to be composed of certain phenomenal experiences such as mental images, but in contrast to higher order consciousness, it is supposed to be bound to a time around the measurable present, to lack a concept of self and a concept of past and future, and to be beyond direct individual report." Unquote. In another section of the book, he goes on, quote, Both primary consciousness and higher order consciousness provide means of freeing animal behavior from the tyranny of ongoing events. Without a means of developing a composite image, an animal would be at the mercy of simultaneous but disparate environmental happenings. In primary consciousness, relief is provided over short temporal intervals. A scene is constructed that involves ordering and succession of perceptual categorizations arising from different sensory modalities and inputs, and their cohesion in a given period of time. This process is also concerned with the relation of signals to the categorization of motor acts. Primary consciousness, as we shall see, permits an animal to regulate the salience of various parts of a stimulus complex in terms of its own individual adaptive needs, and above all, to guide its actions and behavior to reach particular goals. In higher order consciousness, the freedom is greater. The emergence of concepts and later symbolism allows the use of memory to develop a coherent picture or an internal model of present, past, and future." Unquote. I think that when I speak of consciousness, particularly with reference to the hard problem of consciousness, I am thinking mostly about primary consciousness. Let's return to the characteristics of consciousness that I presented in episode two. There were five characteristics. I said first that consciousness is a unified composition of contents. I observed that consciousness always has content, and it would seem that the individual contents are anchored or bound together in time to make up an experience. Thus, the contents are unified. This first characteristic seems to be descriptive of primary consciousness. I said second that conscious contents are specific and meaningful. A certain sound is different from another sound, for example. The specific contents are often referred to as qualia, and obviously greenness is distinct from itchiness and so on. Qualia have meaning from our point of view, not necessarily translatable symbolic meaning, but meaning nonetheless. Here I think we, we begin to find elements of both primary and higher order consciousness as defined by Edelman. In fact, it seems that this is the place where we might begin to understand the examples I talked about from Sam Harris's lessons in meditation. I'll return to the topic of meaningful content shortly. Third, I said that conscious contents exist from a point of view. 
In visual perception, receptors situated in the retina of my eye communicate to visual areas of my brain, which has consequences in me, in my mind. I have previously argued that the self, as point of view, is undeniable. Here we appear to be talking again about primary consciousness. The self-construct, or ego, belongs to the realm of higher-order consciousness, but the point of view belongs to primary consciousness. I set forth that consciousness is temporally continuous. I recalled that Searle defined consciousness as those states of sentience and awareness that typically begin when we awake from a dreamless sleep and continue until we go to sleep again, or fall into a coma, or die, or otherwise become unconscious. I noted that individual experiences do not have borders in time, rather they seem to flow from one into the next. This, I think, is the realm of primary consciousness. Finally, I said that consciousness is limited and coherent. Consciousness apparently has a limited bandwidth. Attention to different aspects of our experiences seems to bring forward or amplify specific qualia at the expense of others. The experience is coherent as evinced by the Necker cube, which provides in the mind only a single interpretation of content at any one time. I would suggest that this too is descriptive of primary consciousness. So let's make some observations. It looks to me like higher order consciousness requires primary consciousness. It is built on top of it. Most of the fundamental characteristics of human consciousness are primary. But I noticed as I went through the list, which after a year of contemplation I still stand by, that the second characteristic, that conscious contents are specific and meaningful, appears to be a place where higher order consciousness is a useful concept. Let's consider the practice of meditation, having gleaned this lesson. First, we are sitting with eyes open, gazing upon the field of view before us. Sam Harris instructs us to relax our focus, to take in a wide area all at once. He tells us to observe the colors and shadows. Why is this task so difficult? Why do I see objects and surfaces rather than merely plays of light and darkness? If I were a baby looking at this same scene, with no practical experience of such objects or how things are expected to feel or reflect light, then I might have no choice but to experience the scene in raw form. My past experience impinges upon the present. I suggest that higher order consciousness is a hierarchy of relationships. I do not just see the meaning of a color or a shape or a shadow. I see it in context. I have meanings as well as meanings of meanings, and so on. The challenge of mindfulness in this exercise is to forego the higher order meanings and pay close attention to the first order meanings. The brain is not presenting them to me in this way though, and hence the challenge. How to outsmart my brain? That'll be the day. How about the second meditation example, the one where Harris asks us to experience the body as a cloud of sensations, foregoing our knowledge of its form. This, it seems to me, is an exercise in a different modality, but it suffers from the same difficulty. A tingling in my left knee is indeed just a raw sensation. It is a meaning, a specific tingling in consciousness, but it also has further meanings, meanings of meanings. I know that it is the left and not the right. I know that it is my knee. I know that my knee is situated like a hinge between my upper and lower leg. I know how my leg relates to the rest of my body. I know that it is called a knee in English. Meanings of meanings. Once again, the challenge is to pay close enough attention to experience the primary meanings. Last year, I published my theoretical framework for consciousness in the journal Consciousness and Cognition. This is the summary taken directly from my paper. I wrote, quote, According to the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, framework, 
Consciousness is composed of contents that have meaning from the point of view of a single large system. Subsystems of integrated elements, thalamocortical neurons and neuronal groups, provide the substrate from which these conscious contents emerge. Subsystems have a level of TIC that is higher than that of the system. Thus, the TIC for the whole system provides a threshold for meaning. All subsystems are components of a larger system from which the conscious whole emerges. The contents have meaning in accordance with their particular relationship to one another from a larger point of view. The conscious experience exists, but it does not exist to itself. The contents of consciousness exist to the system in which they occur. This is how they are unified into a single dynamic experience, but differentiated in their individual character, spatially and temporally. During a state of non-consciousness, integration is insufficient to establish the system. Without that, there is no point of view from which to evaluate any level of integrated activity occurring within a local network. Furthermore, conscious contents have their own spatial and temporal greens in accordance with the TIC of the subsystem underlying them. Conscious experiences are dynamic compositions of contents. They are temporally continuous. So during non-consciousness, the propensity for elements to shift into down states prevents conscious experience. I propose that the TICL is the full neural correlate of consciousness. Accordingly, the content-specific NCC is the TIC of an individual subsystem." Unquote. My framework appreciates the possibility of nested contents of consciousness as emergent from nested subsystems. This provides for hierarchies of meaning, which are constrained only by the limitation of cortical connections and functional dynamics. In principle, a brain with a bunch more integrated cortex could extract that much more meaning from perceptual and cognitive contents. I think that primary consciousness, as Edelman frames it, probably exists widely across the animal kingdom. Further, I would guess that many animals have evolved forms of higher order consciousness that might enable them to plan for the future or remember past events, explicitly. Maybe only a few animals have such capacities, some of the apes as well as dolphins and whales. The expansion of cerebral cortex in our lineage is pretty remarkable. This passage from Patricia Churchland makes the point well. In her book, Conscience, she writes, quote, Human cortex is distinguished mainly by having a greater number of neurons, and hence is bigger than the cortex of other primates. The orderliness of the canonical circuitry of the cortex probably is what makes it scalable, since the genes for building cortical tissue in the fetus can just be turned on for a more extended period, and the new additions fit right in with the existing circuitry. The scalability of cortex also suggests that the genetic adjustments involved in producing additional neurons to make additional cortex in a species readily occur. Importantly, the genetic portfolio and the principles governing cortical development in the embryo and the infant appear to be widely shared among all mammals. This means that the roughly 200 million year old cortical innovation worked well in its early days and it still works well today. There are some differences in the cortical genetics of mice and primates. One interesting modification is that individual neurons are much smaller in primates than in rodents, with the upshot that you can pack far more neurons into a cubic millimeter of the canonical circuitry of primates. Miniaturization of neurons is an adaptation of primates. Mice have only about 14 million cortical neurons, which can comfortably fit into a mouse's small skull. A monkey, however, has about 2 billion cortical neurons, while a human has 16 billion cortical neurons, so unless their neurons are much tinier and much more densely packed than those in the mouse brain, a disastrously gigantic head would be necessary." Unquote. 
These elaborations must enable further higher-order meanings to be enjoyed. This is likely necessary for the appreciation of logic, mathematics, language, and music. In all of these cases, an appreciation of deeper structure is abstracted from a massive data set of cortical activity. Can we see the trees for the forest? My interest in this episode has been to consider the degree to which we can access the raw building blocks of consciousness. Consider for a moment episodic memory. Presumably a set of cortical activities are reinstantiated in the present moment. You recall where you were and what event was happening at that time. You might like to think that you can bear witness again to the truth of that episode, how it looked, how it felt, what you thought about it at the time. Unfortunately, the historical event is being reimagined and editorialized to fit what you are now. This episode of Recall is itself an experience colored by its own milieu of contextual factors, and thus you identify with your past self by including aspects of current self in the analysis. In this way, the memory is a narrative about a younger person that is known to you from your past, but it could just as well be a narrative about somebody else. In each case, you hypothesize what it would have felt like from your own present perspective. It is thus through memory that we can gain access to empathy for our fellows. Just as we identify with the protagonist of a book or a film, we identify with our own past selves. There is not one among us who has not felt shame for some past transgression, humiliation for some past failure. Perhaps at the time we did not feel shame, but now as we revisit the past, we do. These experiences serve a purpose in shaping the future along better lines. We must forgive ourselves and rebuild better, and we must forgive others too. Our past selves were redeemable, if where we stand now is upon higher moral ground. We must be willing to offer redemption to others as well, and given our own development across time, admit that we didn't know everything then, and we don't know everything now. I'll close with some wise old words worth remembering. Quote, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory will swell when again touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature." Unquote. Abraham Lincoln